And so the book of John in these verses introduces us to the first disciples that we see in the ministry of, of Jesus Christ. And, and last week we were able to go through the grand part of this. We saw the first two disciples that, that come to Jesus and, and Jesus kind of brings it to him, which is Andrew and Peter. And, and then later on we see Philip uh, be discovered by Jesus because it says they, Jesus found Philip. And then Philip also goes and finds Nathaniel. And so they, we have this concept of discipleship by their actions, by their calling, by their identification of Jesus, by the titles that they give Jesus, and they're able to distinguish who Jesus Christ is as opposed to many others who have just seen or heard of Jesus. And what's interesting here is that these disciples came to follow Jesus prior to him doing anything that would relate or give us awe as far as miracles. Jesus didn't do any miracles prior to the, them accepting to follow him. So my big question here as we explore this theme and this passage, and we're going to get to the last two verses in this chapter today, which will be our, our, our summary or our final aspect. But I want to explore this theme to you. And the big question in this theme of discipleship is what did the disciples see? There is a consistent implication of a visual effect in the entire first chapter. And, and so my preoccupation here is, what is it about discipleship that includes stimulus from your eyesight, from a visual experience? What did they see? As a matter of fact, when John the Baptist sees Jesus, what does he say? He says, behold, in verse 29, and he repeats it again in verse 34, behold the what? The Lamb of God. So that immediately brings a type of picture or a type of visual effect to the hearer, especially his disciples like Andrew and John that were with, uh, next to each other, that, that brings some type of visual effect to their mind that gets them to examine what the Lamb of God is. Remember, Leviticus and Jewish custom and the Jewish people understood the Lamb to be the perfect sacrifice for the cleansing of the sin of His people. The only way Israel would be washed of their sin was if the spotless lamb would be given as a sacrifice. So when John calls their attention and says, Behold, look, look, my disciples, put your eyesight on the lamb of God, it immediately brings this mindset and this visual in their brains to, to think of perfection, of spotlessness, of uniqueness, of this one-of-a-kind aspect of a lamb. And it also includes the sacrificial element of the lamb. The lamb was to die. The lamb was to be sacrificed. The lamb was to substitute their lives with its own. And so this visual imagery that they get is about this very lamb. 
And it captivates them so much that we read in, in verse 35, if you want to go back to chapter 1, verse 35, uh, we get the story. The next day, John was standing with the two disciples, and he looked, and Jesus, as he, as he walked by and said, Behold, there it is, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Did you see that? Immediately after hearing, they followed. What did they hear? They heard the Lamb of God. So we get this consistent imagery uh, aspect in the first chapter that calls our attention to a visual experience. A, a type of positive ocular trauma that occurs in our eyesight. Especially in the physical eyesight of the disciples. I want, I want to re, re, uh, remind you of this stimuli. I want to remind you of what the, the, the first chapter says as far as bringing their attention to, to see Jesus so that you can keep asking yourself, what did they see? In, in, uh, keep your Bibles open to, to the first chapter. I'm going to go through several verses in chapter 1 again just so it can remind you because it's been a while since we go through it. But in chapter 1, verse 4 and verse 7, what do we have? We have this, this understanding of the light of the world and that light needs to be witnessed in verse 7. So you get immediately in verse 4 of chapter 1 we have the concept of light what does light do it reveals and once that light shines what happens immediately at the shining of that light it there needs to be a witness and a testimony in verse 7 it says he came as a witness referring to John to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him so the light comes into the world, it shines, it does its job, and it calls for a witness to it. Keep this in mind as we, as we explore the concept of witness, that it is an observation. You remember, we, we spoke about this way back when we started, when, when you're a witness to a crime scene, you were the first-hand uh, ex you experienced it firsthand. You didn't hear it about it. It wasn't like your friend called you, man, bro, I just saw this crazy car accident on the 290. No, it wasn't someone calling you. It was that you physically were there. You saw exactly what happened. And so when this light comes in, there is a need to witness about it or testify about it, especially because you witness it. And then what happens in verse 10? As a summary, he was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. Once again, knowing here is in the context of seeing and believing and the world did not recognize him. And then in verse 14, the beautiful statement that we get, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And what does this, the, the next thing say? And we have what? seen his glory that's that's what i want to get your attention around who's this we that john is referencing he's talking about the discipleship he's incorporating the the new messianic community of what it means to follow jesus and one of the first things that it, that it does imply in verse 14 is that we have seen the glory of God. They stood there observing his life 
and being impacted and transformed by God's glory. It's an ocular experience. It's them visually seeing what it means to follow Christ. In verse 18, it references again, no one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side, talking about Jesus Christ, the Son, He has made him known. There it is again. Known? What does it mean to be known? You've seen. You can experience. You've recognized. In verse 10, the world did not recognize. But in verse 18, Jesus has made the Father known. He has shown us the Father. So in Jesus, we get to see God. So that begins to answer the questions What did the disciples see? They saw the glory of God. They were there as firsthand witnesses to this glory. That's why in verse 29 of chapter 1, John says this wonderful statement that we just repeated. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, there it is, bringing our attention, a visual attention, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of God. The world, it is a visual experience that John sends the attention of the crowd, and then he does it with his disciples. Verse 31, I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be, here it is, revealed to Israel. The the people of God were to see God in their midst. And the purpose of the witness was to make him known, was to reveal him. You you start seeing the same thread go across all the terminology in chapter 1 about seeing, visual, recognizing, observing, seeing, behold. It's all the same context for the witnesses and for the disciples of Christ. And Israel was to see this. And in verse 32, and John bore witness. And what does he say? I saw. What did he see? The Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. And in verse 34, he says, and I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. So the witness of John is more strongly emphasized, it has more of an emphatic tone, because John saw the Spirit descend on the Son. It proves that Jesus Christ was God in the eyes of John, and this is what John wanted to emphasize, especially since he calls himself a witness, marturian. Remember what that means? A martyr. In the first and the second century church, people that that testified about Jesus Christ were called martyrs because they get it from the word marturian, which which means witness, which means a testimony, a firsthand experience or an eyewitness of Jesus Christ. And so you see this common thread All in in chapter 1, and you'll see it again in verse 39. He said to them, come and you will see. We we, we spoke about this last week. Uh, The disciples come to Jesus, and Jesus turns around and looks at them and says, what are you guys looking for? And and, and they're following, and they say, teacher, rabbi, where are you staying? They wanted to see where he was staying. And, And Jesus said, 
come and see. There was the invitation. Come and see. It doesn't say just come follow me. It doesn't say, hey, well, we'll uh, let's, let's walk together. He says, I want you to see. It wasn't because he had an impressive house. It wasn't like, man, I got this new pad and I want everybody to check it out. It was, it was Jesus Christ inviting them to salvation. What he is getting them to see is their need for salvation, even though they're Jewish followers. In verse 42, we read, he brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. So here we have the tables turned. Not only have the disciples seen, not only have the people closest to Jesus seen, not only have the crowds seen and experienced and and have the revelation of the glory of God, but now Jesus himself does the looking. And if you remember last week, we spoke about Jesus gazing and, and really paying attention. It wasn't just like, oh yeah, I saw him coming. It was like Jesus had his eyesight on top of Simon Peter. As he saw him come close to him, Jesus sees his disciples. And in verse 48, we have the same thing. Nathanael said to him, how do you know me? Jesus answered him, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, what? I saw you. Jesus sees. Jesus sees us. Jesus sees our heart. Jesus knows us. The, the, that terrible feeling of, of, of being under the eyesight of a holy God, knowing everything we have done and everything that we have thought about. No matter of fact, that you could be sitting here right now thinking about God knows what, and God knows that what. God sees what you're actually thinking about. You could be looking at me and be like, and in a whole different world. I don't know what you're thinking. I could be like, man, this guy's paying attention. Only Jesus knows what exactly is in your brain. And he sees you. And the fact that he still allows you to live is astonishing at some time. But this is what God does. He sees. And then in the last verses that we're going to get to today, I'm going to save them till the end. But there is a big culmination of this experience of visual effects. And I just love this. Jesus does these invitations to his disciples. In verse 46, he invites Philip, come and see. So we, I hope I didn't belabor the point, but I just wanted to make, I wanted to prove to you what the text says and, and, and share that theme with you. Visual effect. What do they see? What is it that they've experienced and, and, and why do they give up their lives to follow Jesus? Now, this is in stark contrast to those who do not see. And many times, you guys are, if you've been around the church for a while, you've understood some biblical references, all from the Old Testament and from the New Testament, that those who do not follow Jesus are typically called blind. They are blind, and that's why they should not let the blind lead the blind, because they will both fall into a ditch. And so in the, in the Gospel of John... I want you to turn to chapter 9, just so you can see what I'm talking about. In chapter 9, we have these leaders of the law, the leaders of Israel, these knowers of Scripture that can have it memorized, but they do not know who Christ is. 
And Jesus confronts them, and they're known as the Pharisees. And when we get to this in, in our future study, we'll go into it in a little bit more detail. But in chapter 9, verse 39 and on, Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Well, what's going on there? So who's he talking to? He's talking to the Pharisees who believe that they see. But Jesus says, no, you think you see, but you don't. And in verse 40, some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, are we also blind? Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But, no, but now that you say we see, your guilt remains. What Jesus is telling them is, you think you're not blind, and you say you're not blind. And in the previous verses, he said, I didn't call, I didn't come to bring those who think they are not blind. No, he, he, he comes to bring those who are blind. And so the fact here that the Pharisees think that they're not blind, Jesus says, you are blind. But what Jesus is saying is, there are those who understand they're blind. There are those who know they're blind. There are those, and, and every time we, we see them in the Gospel of John or in the Synoptic Gospels, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we get to see all these beggars, all these people who are sick, all these people who have heard the great things of Jesus, and they come running to him because they know that Jesus can heal them. The Pharisees never once come to see Jesus because they think they've got it all figured out. And Jesus said, you're blind. You are completely blind. So this is, stands in contrast to those who follow Christ. To those who really go after them. And, and you say, how does this happen? Go, go to, the, go to the, uh, the prophet Isaiah in the Old Testament. How, how does this happen that, that Jesus allows some to be blind and others not? In Isaiah the prophet, chapter 6, verse 10, well, we'll, we'll read it from verse 8. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, send me. And he said, Go and say to this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. This kind of stands in contrast to what the gospel is. We can say, like, well, isn't Jesus supposed to come here to open up the, the eyes of the blind? Yes, but in the context of whom he's speaking to, look what John chapter 12 says. Now go with me to John chapter 12. We'll start from verse 30, at the half of verse 36. When Jesus had seen these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe him. 
so that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed that what he heard from us and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn and I would heal them. There John repeats what Isaiah says because those who do not believe God has hardened because they're the ones in chapter 9 that believe that they are not blind and that have figured it all out. You see what, what, what the disciple sees is, is more the, the greater glory of Jesus Christ but what the disciple also sees is their need for God. When you come to church, if, if you're in that understanding of a disciple, and you come to church primarily for one reason, because you know where you stand before God. In a sense, you don't come here because you're going to show off your holiness. You don't come to church to say, this is... Man, I deserve to be here. I want people to see me show up and I want to, like, you don't come here to, to give that experience off or give that effect off. You come here because you understand one thing. The reason I'm here is because I've understood one thing, that I'm a sinner and that God is my Savior. And that the only way I can sustain life or the only way my life can be sustained is if God does the sustaining. It's not me. And in a little bit, we're going to do communion, which has so much implication for that statement. We are not here because we've got it figured out. If we did, then why be here? God looks for the brokenhearted, for the one who is poor in spirit. God is looking for those who need him. God does not interact like with the Pharisees with those who do not believe they need him we're here because we understand one main thing we need jesus i need jesus i need him to sustain me every day there, there's been a constant battle with in, in theological terms and even in, in 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 church terms with 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 christians that debate this topic constantly and it just becomes tiresome to debate it on and on when people say can can a christian lose salvation or or or, or once save always save and how does that work and and, and there's this constant battle and, and and the real reality of it is if if we are in charge of keeping our salvation then we must be sure that we work hard enough to keep it. But friends, if, if you're anything like me, it, we can't work hard enough to keep our salvation. So that's why God says, I will keep you in my hands. And Jesus repeats this in John chapter 6, and we'll get to that. I will keep you in my hand, and God the Father will close his hand and keep you in his hand. We are here sustained by God. If, if it was up to me, man, I would have lost my salvation a long time ago. I would have lost it like this morning. And it's just, I can't, I can't. That would bring pressure to me every day. Oh, my God, did I lose my salvation? Oh, my God, oh, my God. No, it's God who sustains us. And that's what the disciples begin to understand and why John is bringing this to 
clear perspectives. And, and if you guys remember what we just read in John chapter 12, all of these other would-be disciples or wanna-be disciples or religious folk saw everything Jesus did, all the miracles, in contrast to the, the first disciples that didn't see anything, they saw the miracles Jesus did, and, and what did John say in chapter 12? And they still did not believe. We're, we, we're not invested in the life of Jesus because of the great things he can do. We're invested in Christ's life because he forgives our sin. We don't need a magician. We need a savior. And that's what Christ fulfills in our lives. So he reveals himself to whom he chooses. He is sovereign and he keeps those who think that they can see blind, as the prophet Isaiah says. And then how John reacts to that in John, in John chapter 12. So this intro to discipleship is, is, is a way of an example for us. This discipleship concept that we get between uh, verses 35 through 51 in John chapter 1 is this concept of being a disciple, of seeing Jesus, not only seeing his glory, not only identifying. Remember what every, all the things that they identified them with? They called them rabbi. They called them Messiah. They called them teacher. They called them the son of God. They called them the king of Israel. They called them all of these Christological titles. And that's good as a disciple. But why they followed him was because he was the lamb of God. They followed him because he's the only one that can wash away their sin. If you grow up in a community where, where they teach you every day of your life, especially in the Jewish community, that your sins need to be washed, that you need to go through ceremonial cleansings and ceremonial washings every day of your life. When you grow up in that type of community and you realize that there's the Lamb of God that was promised from the old, then you go running because then you know that your work comes to an end and his work takes place. You run to the Lamb of God. And that's why you've always heard from the, the Christian perspective that we don't work for our salvation. It's the Lamb of God that does the substitutionary work for us. And therefore, in this new community, these in, this initial community of discipleship, it, it, it starts to lay the foundation for the rest of our community as future disciples, this Mathetai that, that come in and, 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 they're, and they're following Jesus Christ, they begin to show us what it means to be a disciple. So if you're confused, so if as at the beginning of this, uh, this sermon, we, we ask the question, well, why discipleship? What does it mean to be a disciple? Well, the, the first chapter of John answers the question. It shows us what discipleship is. And these disciples, even though there's about four or five here, they give us this look into the community. It's interesting that it's right at the front. We see in the first 18 verses the greatness of God. And then from there on out, we just get witnesses. We get John the Baptist uh, uh, witnessing and then the new community of disciples. So these disciples identify Jesus Christ and, and they show what they are and they show us how to live as those who are now considered 
disciples. I, I don't know if you've ever considered yourself a disciple of Christ or simply a follower of Christ. And what's the difference? Well, I'm going to get to that right now because I want to make sure that this theme gets embedded in our souls. We're, going to, we're about to take communion in a couple of minutes. And I want to make sure that you understand first and foremost this concept of discipleship. I mentioned this last week, but the word mathetai or mathetes, which is disciples, is, is mentioned 78 times in this gospel, identifying those who come after Jesus. They are the ones that are called. As you saw in, with, with Peter and Nathaniel, they are called. They, they, they follow Jesus. They also participate in his work. They, they also gradually step in the foreground. Like you begin to know them like Peter and John. You begin to identify their leading roles in the church. They, they identify their teacher, the rabbi, which means that they are the apprentice. That's the basic meaning of disciple. The one who sits under a teacher. The second meaning of disciple is one who is known by his teacher. So the one who's always hanging out with the teacher. The one who's always following the rabbi. But the primary concern of a disciple is one who sits at the feet of the rabbi. Consistently learning, learning as an apprentice. And always growing. In contrast. We saw the contrast of those who are, not, who are considered blind. Now we see another contrast between disciples and followers. You may have said once, I'm a disciple of Christ. You may have said once, I followed Jesus. Well, here's the difference. All, and I'm only zooming in on the gospel of John because that's the gospel that we're, that we're speaking about. But all of the times in John that we see followers... Roughly 14 times that this word crowd appears in John, they usually appear when Jesus is performing miracles or in a hot debate. So it's no different from us in our modern day context. Like, we love to see a fight. We love to see arguments. We love to see miraculous events or something that happens out of, out of the norm. And so every time the word crowd appears, it's typically in this context. Jesus is doing something wonderful. So these are people that follow Jesus because what he does. We see this in John chapter 7 and John chapter 12. They're, they're what we know as external followers. On the outside, they're in the periphery. Their opinions are divided and they have no understanding of the trueness of, of Jesus Christ. That's why they're always asking him questions and are kind of doubtful all the time. We saw it a little bit in Nathaniel, but Nathaniel was doubtful for a little bit. And then he turned around and said, you are the king of Israel. You are the son of God. Clearly identifies him there. So the predominant characteristic of one that follows Jesus is only at a distance and only to seek benefit for themselves. They saw the healings 
occur in John chapter 5. They saw the multitudes being fed in John chapter 6. They saw uh, the, the, the wonderful event at the feast. They saw the raising of Lazarus. They saw, they saw, they saw, like the disciples, but unlike the disciples, after seeing, they did not believe. Once again, John chapter 12, verse 40. They saw and they did not believe. What, what was the difference? There's a difference in how we perceive Jesus Christ. There's a difference in what we want to see in Jesus. There's a difference. That's why we have many different types of churches. Have you ever asked yourself why? Roman Catholicism, there's only one church. It's only one church. And us Protestants, us rebellious people, we've got hundreds of denominations. We've got Baptists, we have uh, Lutherans, we have Presbyterians, we have uh, Southern Baptists. We have all these weird denominations coming up all over the place. We're all different. We're all looking for something different. And there's even new moves of Christianity where there's big churches that emphasize certain aspects of Jesus' life. And they're usually very big because they love this type of Jesus that is presented to them as one who gives and can heal and will bless you and will prosper you and will make you be rich. Who wouldn't want that? And there's different perspectives so we get to see the lives of these crowds and not being those to judge, but seeing the life of those crowds in the context of every day. What does it mean for them to be a disciple at work, though? So we have to be very cautious how we approach Christ. We have to be very cautious of what we want to see in Christ. We have to understand, first and foremost, the first identification of Jesus Christ is the Lamb of because we are sinners in need of substitution. If the lamb was not there, how shall we be saved? What shall we do? Then, my friends, we have to get to work. If the lamb of God isn't present, you and I need to get to work. We need to start feeding as much uh, children as we can. We need to start clothing all the naked that we can. We need to start doing good things. Because how else are we going to be saved? But friends, the Lamb of God is there. It's the Lamb of God. We're sinners that have been washed and renewed in the blood of the Lamb. Which is part of what we're going to be doing today as communion. That's why it's so important. That's why we do it once a month. Disciples see their need and know that only one can solve it. Followers or crowds are just there for speculation. And seeing if any of it can, provide, can, can kind of fulfill their needs. You see, disciples, though they are disciples of Christ, they're not perfect people. If you look at me and my life, you look at yourselves, we're not perfect. We follow Christ, we're disciples of Christ, and we still fail. That's why... Both disciples and crowds were absent from the crucifixion. It's not, it's not that they were, uh, who, why, the, why weren't the disciples there if they, if they knew what he was doing? Why weren't the, it, it just shows human nature. 
It shows our downfall. That's why Peter was the way he was. The rock of the church, but he was the way he was prior to being that rock. And we see him, like I told you last, last week, Jesus calls him the devil. They're not perfect people, but they've understood the concept of repentance. And that's why the church preached repentance before it preached anything else. Repent. That's why Jesus preached repentance. That's why John the Baptist preached repentance before anything else. And so it isn't the concept of being perfect, or it isn't the context of disciples that are perfect and the crowds are imperfect. It's that we both need Jesus, except we've identified that we need him. The crowds still are trying to figure out what part of Jesus they want. Hey, you know, I like that part. I like that aspect. Ooh, yeah, make me happy. Uh, give me a better job. Ooh, give me more money. Ooh, make, make me marry a beautiful wife or a beautiful or a handsome husband. Uh, you know, these are the things that we're trying to get from Jesus. That's what the crowds were doing. And that's why the crowds were always divided. But we begin to see the importance of the witness. So these first disciples that begin to shape our understanding of discipleship were witnesses first and foremost by themselves or themselves, but then they wrote down the message. So it implies our lives. We follow Jesus not because we've seen him on a first-hand basis, I don't want to risk asking the question, who has seen Jesus? Because there might be somebody here that will be like, oh, I saw him. And that, then it will get kind of awkward. But none of us have seen physical Jesus. So then why do we follow him? Because there's a witness to him. Because firsthand witnesses wrote down what they saw, who they met, and who they followed. And these witnesses were the ones that shed their blood as martyrs before they gave off the testimony. This is who Jesus is. The discipleship process is not rooted in our firsthand witnessing of Jesus, but now it is rooted in God's word. We follow because we have God's word. There is no other perfect witness to Jesus Christ than what we have in Scripture. That's why, my friends, you're not, you're not here listening to me say, say things like, man, Jesus told me these amazing things and I'm going to reveal them to you. Jesus spoke to me in my secret place and he gave me this secret vision of, of, of a new church and, and I'm going to give this vision that Jesus gave me for 2020. It's amazing. I don't have... No one has that because everything that has been revealed is here already. How imperfect would that revelation be? How many times have people stood up and said, Jesus showed me this and then it doesn't happen. And so what, who lied? Did Jesus get confused? Was Jesus wrong? This is important, my friends. So as disciples, we are of a witness and a testimony of Jesus because of what is written. So if we don't know what is written, then we don't know Jesus. Disciples follow his witness, first-hand accounts, where we are to imitate Christ the way these disciples began 
to follow. They saw, they stood, they remained, they confessed, they believed, they preached the gospel. So that ultimately, discipleship goes into the moment of climax. What's the climax of discipleship? Conformity to Christ. So that one day, you and I can say what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Imitate me because I imitate Christ. A lot of us don't like saying that. A lot of us are like, no, bro, imitate Christ, bro. Yeah, no, no, keep, follow Jesus. Don't, don't look at me, bro. Don't look at me. Follow Jesus. And it's easier because Jesus is perfect. Why did Paul say, imitate me? Because he was a disciple. So, my friends, you should say, imitate me. Because I imitate Christ. Because I am of Christ. The original Greek is, I am of Christ. Because I am of Christ, I am his, he is mine, he is all of me, that's why you should imitate me. Not because I'm good, but because I imitate Christ. So to close off this section, I want to read to you the last verses of John chapter 1. Last week we ended on verse 49. Today, verse 50, Jesus answered him, talking to Nathaniel. Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree. Do you believe? You will see what? Greater things. You see that again? That common theme. You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on who? The Son of Man. That's why we read Genesis chapter 28 at the beginning of this. Because Jacob saw the angels coming up and down. And then he called that place this wonderful name Bethel. Bethel. The house of God. That's where God lives. At that place. And then Jacob worshipped there. But in Jesus Christ, we have the angels ascending and descending. And what, what, what John the writer is saying here is that we have a new Bethel. We have a new temple, which is Jesus Christ. And, and so what Jesus then says is vastly important because he, he's, gonna say, he's telling the disciples, you're going to see greater things. And what you will see is the affirmation of God descending on the Son, letting you know that God is here. And is walking amongst you. It wasn't that they were going to just be amazed by all the glorious miracles that Jesus was going to do. No. Jesus was referring to him being, that's why he says it, the son of man. Another Daniel reference from the Old Testament. This is the son of man who has been anticipated is now walking amongst you. I am the new house. I am the new Bethel. It's in Jesus Christ. Disciples follow. Disciples know Disciples understand that they need salvation. Why don't we stand up today as we prepare our hearts for this communion service.
We have to understand why we do communion in order for us to take and partake of communion. Thank you.